Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And we have some pretty important news today, Paul. <laughs> Rick, this is Bottle Talk. We never have important news. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. That's, but this is kind of good. So, Paul, do you like IPAs? I love them. That's because you might be a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not the first person to suggest that. <laughs> well, besides the psycho thing, which we'll explain in just a second, we've got questions from listeners about storing wine in the fridge, about wine service, and more. And we have some attack-like horrible wine writing. But let's get back to Paul being a serial killer psycho. Hey, wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Hey, don't blame me. It's a study. Uh, of course it is. <laughs> All right. This is this is good, actually. I like this. Oh, I, yeah. I don't know if there's any validity to it, but it was a study, darn it. Okay, so this is from the scientific journal Appetite. That doesn't sound scientific. I know. I don't know how they managed to come up with a normal name. Uh, and anyway, researchers at the University of Innsbruck in Austria did two separate studies and found the same thing. If you like certain flavors more than others, it can say something about your personality. I can hardly wait what's going to come out. <laughs> I, I like beer. I'm going to get hammered here. No, I no, no. Tell. Here's the thing. Okay, so the scientific thinking is this. Human beings are predisposed to like sweet things sort of as an evolutionary force. Sugar's, okay. sugar's fuel, right? So fundamentally, we're like keeping ourselves alive by liking sugar, that sort of thing. All right. So what they say is if people tend to prefer other flavors instead, it means that there were things going on as they were developing when they were young that affected them in their personalities. And let, <laughs> let me quote the study, if I yeah, might. Yeah, please do. Bitter taste preferences are associated with more pronounced malevolent personality traits, especially robustly with everyday sadism. Well, Rick, I would say that, frankly, it's got to be more masochism because I keep volunteering to do this show with you. That is a malevolent thing to say, my friend. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right. I think that also explains the craft beer craze. I think it's pushing people towards super hoppy IPAs. I think it's just the malevolence. The, the malevolence? The yeah. everyday sadists because <laughs> I think many people don't like beers as hoppy as they pretend. Oh, brother. That's just me now. Or was, was, was that a psycho thing to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. does that also mean that people who t drink these really tannic red wines, and does that also mean could that be. they're psychopathic? Could, could be. And the reverse is this. So people who like a touch of sweetness in their wine, especially they don't, don't drink a lot of wines, what are they, Paul? I'm guessing they're normal. You got it. <laughs> you got it. So people like a sweet... Anyway. Okay. All right. So... Um, we, we should actually point out very briefly that there is a touch of sweetness to a lot of wines, not to the level that you might notice it, but, you know, a lot of very popular Chardonnays in particular might right. have, a, you know, 1% more. That's right. And it gives it a robot. It gives it a, a softness or roundness as well. Roundness. Touch, yeah. touch of sweetness. Yeah. Smooth. Makes mm -hmm. it smooth, as we've said. Yeah, and yep. so uh, the people that like that, of course, uh, who make fun of that, I should say, are the real wine snobs. Those are the malevolent personality traits. <laughs> so now we've identified we've identified the wine snob as a malevolent personality. We are never getting invited to another winery, are we? <laughs> I never get invited anyway. <laughs> All right. Oh man. Okay. This is it. it. It basically says that those sorts of folks, the that the it, it. I do. I love this. I love. We have scientific proof, Paul, that wine snobs are antisocial. Well, does it say anything about people who try not to like what other people like? Well, that's the malevolent personality that's trait. That's because that is isn't that the definition of a wine snob, right? You bring a wine, and no matter how good it is, no matter how I tell popular you what's wrong it is, it. somebody is. And I told the story before. I will tell it very briefly. Is I had a friend invited us over to his house, very big house. Guy's a mortgage broker, makes lots of money. Still has an ego. And in any case, so he pours us a wine. It's a wine I liked. Everybody liked it. And I said, hey, 
friend, I won't use his name, I said, I like this wine. He couldn't help himself. He says, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to say is, so you're telling me you poured you poured us a wine you don't like. Thank you right. very much. Yeah. Thank you very he much. He just couldn't help, he couldn't help that reflex. That's right. Yes. That's right. But I love this. Thank you very much, uh, the Innsbruck, I'll, Austria, for, for giving us amazing. It's amazing that that university could have also produced a sound of music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and not liking it, Paul, makes you a little bit malevolent yourself. I'm just saying. All <laughs> okay. right. We're going to move on and take some uh, very social-like, uh, calm and normal people questions. Cool. Sweet questions. Sweet questions. That's it. Thank you for listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And if you'd like to ask us a question and you're not on our website, you can go there at rickandpaulwine.com. Uh, we will answer all of your questions as long as they're not psycho. <laughs> Look for us on iTunes, too, by the way, and you can subscribe for free with just one click. Okay, this first question comes from Suzanne in Fresno. Mm -hmm. It's a name I don't recognize from our Fresno enclave, if nobody's uh, heard that wow. before. You know, we so maybe actually, we got another We have a handful of people in Fresno that for wow. some reason okay. like us. So anyway, here's her question. When I go to the store, I buy four bottles of wine name removed so they don't sue us. A Chardonnay. So I get a discount because four bottles, some places six. Hers is f four. four. That's nice. I'll see Fresno. Yeah, you ought to move yeah. to Fresno, yeah, right? She says, I put them in the fridge until I drink them and I get to the last one, usually in a couple of weeks. Okay. Which is not ha would not happen in my, that's a couple hours in my house. But <laughs> any, right. In any case, she says, my boyfriend said he heard somewhere I shouldn't do that. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know how much about wine, but don't tell him. <laughs> that's another story, she says. But anyway, is he right about not putting them in the fridge? In this case, he isn't, but there is a reason not to store wine in the refrigerator. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address it from a slightly different point of view, which is, uh, what's the other option? Well, that's a good point, too. Because if the other option is the cabinet is the cupboard next to the oven, the fridge is way better than the cupboard next to the oven. Yeah. The, the theory is that if you put wine in a fridge, over time, the vibrations from the operation of the, the refrigerator will eventually mute the fruit and the wine and make it yeah, taste Yeah, and let's slightly. go sideways for just a second. When we talk about storing wine, we've, we've said this a lot. We'll say it a lot again. The three things that you want to avoid are heat, light, and vibration. And Rick's corkscrew. And Rick's corkscrew, right. You, you want to avoid me because they won't store because <laughs> I'll, I'll store. get to them. They'll be gone. Yes. They'll be gone. So, so right. calm, he, right. heat, dark, light, vibration. calm, dark, relatively cool. And so, so the problem here is that you don't have the the calm. The, the fridge gets you two of the three. Yeah. And unless you've got a place in your house that gets the three of the three, the fridge is probably the best choice. Yeah. The other thing, too, is a couple of weeks is not a long time. That's right. Yeah. And so I, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you did have, particularly, you know, if it was, a, and it's going to be a white that you're going to stick in there. But if you had a wine that you were saving for, you know, a couple of months from now, that wouldn't be the place. And then the place might be just simply the bottom of a closet. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's your, the, the bottom of your, your boyfriend's closet where his sports equipment is that he never uses. That he never uses, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or with a lot of a lot of people it's it's their their racing bike. Because <laughs> 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 they never get into it. Okay. Yep. This is from Alexandra in Santa Rosa. She says, I heard you guys talking about wine service, so I did something you said. I know that I should know better than to follow your advice. <laughs> oh, so, God Alexander, bless you, you Alexandra. are you, uh, and yet you listen to us, so we appreciate it. <laughs> she says. But anyway, there's a restaurant where I know the wine guy is studying for those sommelier tests. So I asked him not to pour all the women first, then all the men, which is what he always does. I right. said, just go around the table. 
he kind of freaked. Like he was being watched. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. So I said, never mind. You go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. What is, here's what, it, to me, what is beautiful about this. How many people walk into a restaurant and are terrified of the sommelier? <laughs> yes. And yet here, Alexandra turned the tables with one tiny little suggestion. <laughs> Suddenly, she has this guy absolutely petrified of her. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. Right. And it probably the fact that he's taking these tests and now, now that he, in his mind, has an absolute right way to do it. Well, and not only that, but he's looking around the room wondering, oh, my God. Am is I one being, of, is, this be, is this part of my is test, this right? Is part of the test? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the fact that she asked him, there is no other answer other than yes, ma'am. Yeah, right. But, Alexandra, right. you have hit a, a pot of pure gold here. Yeah. And you need to do this anytime you think that the sommelier is getting a little out of hand. You just make that suggestion. And trust me, your sommelier will just settle I right say, down. I say, like, make him hopscotch. <laughs> Would you go one, four, seven, two, three, five, please? Because that's that's the way we're going to work. <laughs> okay, you just point. Now, could you pour him, then pour her, then pour her, then pour him? <laughs> yeah, and... And, you know, now, if the, the truth of it is any good psalm would say, yes, ma'am. Oh, sure. Of course. You gotcha. No problem. Oh, my job is service. That's my, right. Ser- real service is whatever the, the customer's right. always That's right. right. This is but, beautiful. Yes. That, Alexander, that, that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chuckle about that for it some is. time. We have, we've, we've talked about this once before. We should do a show of this again, which is the, the psalm test, which have good points and bad points. But <laughs> this is clearly a bad point. <laughs> the, the guy got rich. That's pretty choice. Okay. That is uh, questions for the moment. We will have more in just a bit. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Up next, we have some really horrible wine writing. Oh, we've got we've got some now. We've got some bad, bad writing. I for just you. wish people could see the little dance you do. I when was that music dancing, comes wasn't on. I? Ooh, I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's one for you, Rick. Fruit power and complexity dominate the nose, followed by soft, well-rounded fruit on the attack. Then the tannins kicked in, unless served with red meat, to co-dominate into the lingering finish. Oh, there's so much wrong with that. <laughs> there's just so much to love about that horrible bitter wine writing. So I like complexity, as in the, the fruit power and complexity dominate the nose. Right. Power and complexity really aren't things you smell. Well, you know, and, and, and not dominate. only that, but complexity dominating... Yeah. The whole concept of complexity is a lot of things. stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. then the tannins kick in unless served with red meat. Yeah, so this how is somebody you, also how, just doesn't know how to write a sentence. A sentence, <laughs> yeah. an English sentence. That's right. That's so right. if the tannins are served with red meat, they don't kick in? Or uh, I— Well, I'm wondering whether you serve the tannins as a side dish. You get the red meat, the horse plate radish, of and the little plate of yeah, tannins yeah, on the side. You know. yeah. And then, of course— the cannons kick in to co-dominate <laughs> into the lingering finish. Co-dominate yes. with what? There's no other co-domination there. They're co-dominating with nothing. <laughs> well, I like co-dominate. Co-dominate. As, yes, as is, I am the co-singular winner. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay, see if you can top that one. Well, this is pretty good. And this is from a food and wine website. Arty, funky, intellectual the name removed so we don't get sued, has crazy acidity for the acid hounds. This is a rock star. Okay. I wonder what that wine might taste like. Arty, funky, intellectual, and acidity. Well, arty, funky, intellectual... Those all kind of It's like a 1960s poet, right? I'm thinking it has glasses and a beard. 
This yeah. is a wine that has glasses and a beard. An intellectual wine. It's and and this and, is a and, rock star. Yeah. yeah, but see, a rock star wouldn't be arty, funky, and intellectual. It, it should be a singer songwriter. Well, it could be like Sly Stone. He's arty and funky, if perhaps that's not true. intellectual. Yeah, yeah he's a rock star. True. Yeah, although. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what we're describing. I have no idea what <laughs> this wine would remotely taste like. Okay, so as crazy acidity for the acid hounds, I'm going with a white wine from the Loire Valley. Nope. Nope. Red wine from the Loire Valley. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I give up. It was a Pinot Noir. It was a, it was a, Cal- <laughs> it was a California Pinot Noir. In your dreams. Uh, okay. I know, I know. All right. Okay, well, well. I'm glad we cleared that up. I like that, the, that we, we chose uh, uh, intellectual because that's how we are often described. <laughs> yeah. Actually, hounds is how we're often described. Yes. That's right. It's really doggish maybe is better. Um, all right, but speaking of doggish, we are going to go back to some questions. And once again, a reminder that uh, you can ask us a question at rickandpaulwine.com if you are not there already. All right, this one is from Tucker in ha- Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Tucker asks, what are cover crops and what do they do? We were at winery name removed so we don't get sued in Temecula, and they kept saying that they use those. They were really nice, but we both didn't want to ask because they just kind of assumed everybody knows that stuff. What right. are cover crops? Okay, so first of all, bad on them. Yes. To assume everybody knows what they're talking about. when The whole point of explaining stuff to people is to make sure that if they don't understand it, they can ask questions. So bad on the winery. Cover crop is just stuff that grows. And I know this is really going to be complicated, Tucker, so stay with me. A cover crop is a crop that covers the ground. So your vines grow up in the air on trellis systems, and then you've got bare ground underneath them, and many wineries leave some sort of a cover crop. It's sort of a bed of green grasses, et cetera, that grow on the ground, and it helps keep the soil in place, reduces erosion, and can sometimes add nutrients to the soil. Wait, wait, That's a cover it's crop. A crop. Okay. Yeah, don't, and actually, one of the ones that you that hard, you Rick. find often in wine country in in the spring is, is mustard. Is mustard that really bright yellow in between? And what they do is they yep. often plow them back in, and it gives the ground yep. all kinds of stuff. They yep. also bring in the good bugs to eat the bad bugs, and right. all and that kind of stuff. And there are some that even bring in sheep to eat the cover crop. That's true. And sometimes they bring in a moose to eat the sheep. No, they do not no. bring in a moose. Okay. Sheep. <laughs> I think, I think moose eat sheep. Anyway, I just like saying moose. <laughs> Our next one, is... Matt, one more glass of wine for Rick, please. <laughs> Our next is from Julie in Walnut Creek. She says, what are those ice-looking things that I see hanging on the corks? Oh, yeah. Does, do they have anything to do with natural wine? No. 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 Um, in fact... Possibly and technically, that you would never see them on natural wine. Is that right? No, I no, think, no, you know, see, you because that's a na- it's a yeah. natural recurring thing. It is, but so here's what they are: they're tartaric acid. Before you, which run, by the way, we should say is the stuff that you make cream of tartar out of. Right. Before you run screaming from the room, if you ah, you were going to say that, if you buy a grape at your local grocery store and mash it down into its chemical components with a big hammer, one of them that would come out would be tartaric acid. <laughs> okay. I love this. <laughs> Julie, don't do this. What Paul's saying is 
put some grapes and then hit them with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and the chemical components will appear. That's going to be kind of messy. Natural. That is fa- something I would do, Paul, but we don't want Julie doing that. In fact, when the archaeologists look at ancient pots from 5,000 years ago, the way they know they've been used to store wine rather than other— They were mashed with a hammer? No. They oh. have little traces of tartaric, tartaric acid. acid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but- comes from the grapes— and over time, the tartaric acid in solution forms tiny little crystals. The longer it's in the bottle and the more it, it takes, the longer time it takes to come out of solution, the more likely it is to create crystals. And that happens at cold temperatures. So if you have a wine that gets chilled down to about 35 degrees, it often will throw, as the technical, a little little coating of these crystals, either on the cork or they'll, you can find them. The, the cream of tartar industry actually buys them from wineries where they form in barrels and things. Yeah, and sometimes wineries will uh, pre- Chill the wine to get them out. As, right. Yeah, and, That's uh, right. But it, once again, it's yeah. not. A, it's really not a, a natural versus not natural but kind of thing. It is of, a natural occurrence in, it is. in wine. Sp- speaking of chemical tests, however, if you have, if you remember your high school chemistry and the more more sco- uh, scale of hardness, you can take those little tartaric acid crystals and you can put them on a ceramic plate or a china plate. And you can crush them with your fingernail, which is how you know they're not glass. But don't do what Paul was suggesting earlier and hit them with a hammer because you'll break your plate. <laughs> you break your plate. Yes. That's right. All right. But you can crush them with a fingernail. They're really quite soft and perfectly harmless. Speaking of perfectly harmless, uh-oh, I found another study, Paul. <laughs> no, 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 no. These are never harmless, Rick. <laughs> yeah. okay, this well, is this... another one that's going to make me into a, uh, <laughs> yeah, into a malevolent a person. Well, see, and that's the, the it, you're showing your stripes again because your <laughs> malevolent personality does not le- want me to read this study. Nonetheless, because I am a sweet guy, I'm going to plow forward. <laughs> I also found this in the scientific journal Appetite because that's what happens once you start poking around for these yeah, things. Right. It was you in the, start it was, getting hungry for right. them, as it were. So this was researchers at the universities Illinois and Cornell. And, you know, we like Cornell. They do, like they Cornell. do a lot of food-related stuff yep. and yep. wine, too. Uh, they found, and this is kind of funny, that the appearance and behavior of your dining companion affects how you react to your food. You know, Rick, I find that when I sit across the table from you, I often lose my appetite. I've seen that. And, frankly, <laughs> it's just more for me. So I'm good. All right. So here's what they did. Okay. They put an actress in a fat suit, and then the same woman went out not in a fat suit. Right. So she was in so fat suit, not fat suit. Fat suit, skinny suit. Right. And then... In both cases, she ate a lot of pasta, and then she ate lightly. So in the fat suit, with and without eating heavy, okay. not in the fat suit, with, with and without eating okay. heavy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So in the fat suit, the other person served themselves more pasta, uh-huh. especially when the actress ate a lot. So she's right. in the fat suit. They ate a lot. She's eating a lot. They ate even more. And then right. the reverse was true. If she was lean, they ate less. She ate lean. They ate less. So what uh-huh, it says uh-huh. is your eating behaviors are to mirror your companions. Okay. So, I'm, I'm going to – how does that help me eat across the table from you? Well, you should ignore me like everybody else <laughs> and just – and probably drink more, which is what most people do. From now own. on, I'm sitting across the table from Matt and you get your own table. Yes, there you go. <clears throat> I, I think uh, the other part was when the actress acted like a jerk, they, they drank like fish. <laughs> no, that was that, that was not part of the study. You know, there's a – I don't know if you saw the other study that recently about the uh, watching television and eating. 
that you become when you are watching television, particularly a sad show, Rick, like those soap operas you like during the middle of the day? Uh, oh, oh, I they make they, me cry. The, the emotions of the show make you completely insensitive to the cravings of your body and you eat mindlessly. So those years that you spent sitting on the sofa eating bonbons and watching TV, that's why. It's funny you should use the word mindless. I've been called that often, <laughs> but often usually by malevolent personalities. <laughs> All right. That is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our producer is Matt Pisini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for this studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. If you're already there, what is stopping you? And if you learned anything today, we hope it's that those wine snobs out there have those malevolent personality traits. Scientists have now proved that they are bitter, damaged people. <laughs> and we're still going to make fun of them. Oh, yeah. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.